Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Chris Bennett. Chris is joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina. He was a previous guest on the best ever podcast. If you Google Chris Bennett and Joe Fairless, the episode will show up. Chris, thank you for joining us again today. And how are you? Ash, I'm doing great, man. Happy to be here. Great. Best ever listeners, I hope you're having a great weekend. Because today is Saturday, we are going to do a Situation Saturday where we discuss a specific situation that our guest has encountered. Our goal is to give you the tools to overcome this situation should you encounter it as well. Chris is one of two self-storage managing partners at PassiveInvesting.com. He has 14 years of commercial real estate investing experience and has recently added 150 self-storage units to his portfolio. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Let's dive into your sticky situation. Yeah, great. So kind of give you guys a little bit of background on the deal and the situation, et cetera. So I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've made a ton of phone calls to owners looking for properties to purchase. This one, it was about a 2,200 square foot facility. So basically 22 units in total. It was 22 10 by 10s on an acre of land here in the Charlotte area, technically in Gastonia. Most people won't know where that is, but it's just right next to Charlotte, North Carolina. So small deal, but if you're doing some quick math, you realize, okay, 2,000 square feet, give or take on an acre of land. Sounds like you could do a lot more with that land and you would be correct. So that's why we like this deal. It was a very small deal. We don't do small deals anymore, but you can make a lot of money and do really well in small deals. So nothing wrong with those. So we were targeting this one Actually, call it two years ago or so, maybe three years ago. It's 2021. So three years ago, I would make phone calls and call this guy pretty regularly. I called him up probably the first part of 2020 before the coronavirus thing became a thing. And he was like, yeah, I think about selling. And then the coronavirus hit and all the shutdowns went into play. So he said, let's go ahead and hold off. And I said, yeah, let's hold off. I have no idea what's going on with the world. So we re-engaged around June or July 2020. So almost a year ago now, depending on when you're listening to this episode. We put it under contract, big picture, high level view of everything that happened. We can dive into the details of it, of course, but big picture was we put it under contract. We had a, I think it was like a 60 day due diligence, 30 days to close. So we put it under contract at the end of July. We're going to close it at the end of October of 2020. That was the plan. We needed to extend it, not because of us, but because of the seller. And in the very end, we discovered some things that he did not disclose to us. It caused us a lot of heartache and headache. We ended up not closing on the deal, almost sued him, ended up losing about $6,000 of our due diligence money and decided to move on. So that's the big picture there of the deal. A couple questions. Yeah. What's the typical due diligence period for storage units? Usually one of this size. Sure. So something like this size can be done a lot faster. 30 days would be okay. It just depends on your contractors and how long it takes them to get a survey done. Usually the survey takes the longest. We knew some folks in the area would get that done pretty quickly. But being that this was more of a mom and pop deal, we wanted to give ourselves a little bit more time. So anywhere from 30 to 60 days, if you're going larger, like a bigger deal, the seller might say, no, I want 30 days due diligence to kind of speed up that process. But 30 to 60 is typical. What are typical due diligence tasks that are unique to storage units? Well, it's not too bad, actually, because when you go there, it's going to be similar across the board with other types of properties. Like, let's say, multifamily, you're going to get a roof property inspection or roof inspection, of course. You get a phase one, so that the inspection process or the building inspection is called a PCA. You get a PCA done. You get a phase one environmental to make sure there was no environmental issues with the property, with the dirt, et cetera. Survey done, of course. 
With storage, you might do a few different things where you actually walk the units and double check the rent roll with the locks to make sure that if unit 55 is rented to a person, it actually has a person's lock on there. Sometimes facilities have their own locks where they keep a unit locked until it's actually ready to be rented. So making sure that an actual person is renting stuff in the unit. Now you don't open doors and look inside typically because once a tenant moves in, the stuff inside belongs to them and their lock on there. The manager, the property owner has no idea what the combo is. So it would be virtually impossible to do that, to actually open up the unit and look inside. So we don't do that, but we check everything else. So you might check the flow of water on the property, any erosion issues, gate issues is another big one because there's a lot of those gates, obviously they either go up and down or they slide back and forth, left to right, whatever. Sometimes the gate is one of the biggest things that goes out most often. So you have to do some due diligence and finding out when's the maintenance done on the gate or the last time it was fixed, et cetera. Are there any break-ins recently? Because people will sometimes jump the fence and try to break into a unit. Usually crime that occurs at the facility is an inside job. Believe it or not, somebody knows the manager, the manager knows somebody, and they're trying to get into someone's unit. And usually it's an inside job, but sometimes somebody will try to hop over the fence and get into a unit and steal some stuff. So it's kind of similar with certain things, but then a little bit different with the units, the gate, et cetera. On a side note, Chris, I would think that for a thief, this would be like being in Disneyland. <laughs> All you have to do is get a pair of bolt cutters yeah, and just open up units till you find something good. Is that a it, problem in this industry? It can be. It depends on where the facility is located. If you're located, let's call it a class A neighborhood or market or whatever, not typically going to happen. If you're in a class C or maybe even D or whatever, a lower class, I guess, neighborhood, and I say lower class, I don't mean the people, I just mean the location itself, maybe more crime-ridden area. You'll have more often more occurrences of break-ins at the facility. It's pretty tough, though, because when you get in there, let's say you hop the fence and get in, you cut the lock. It's not like it's easy to cut a lock. It's not that easy, actually, if you ever try. And then there's some techniques and depending on the type of lock. But if you have a disc lock, usually those are what's used by tenants and what's usually promoted by the manager because it's the safest type of lock to prevent theft. Anyway, those are pretty hard to get into. But once you get in, how are you going to get the stuff out? You, <laughs> like you need to like you throw it over the fence to your buddy. How do you actually get out of the facility? That's why it's usually an inside job because uh-huh. you got to drive a car in there. How to get access through the gate? So maybe you're a thief. You rent a unit there, so you have access. But how do you know who else has stuff in there? Well, the manager would know. So the manager could tell you, oh yeah, unit fifty five. We need to get into that one. So that's where the inside job comes into play. Interesting. And on your due diligence, I'm assuming you do something similar where you put earnest money down, but it's refundable Mm -hmm. if you find something that doesn't meet your qualifications. Yeah, that's right. So usually a 30-day or 60-day due diligence period, you put down your earnest money deposit, maybe 1%, 2%. On a mom and pop deal, it could be 5,000 bucks. It could be 2,500 bucks. It depends on what you guys negotiate, of course. So you put that down until the end of the due diligence period, at which time it then goes hard or non-refundable. And this 2,200 square foot self-storage facility is the reason you no longer do small deals? (laughs) No, not really. It's the reason I won't do a mom and pop deal where the guy wants to do a handshake. We didn't do a handshake here. We had a contract, but he kept talking about handshake deals and he would not use an attorney. So that's on him, right? So we have an actual contract, no issue with that whatsoever. It's enforceable in a court of law but he doesn't want to use an attorney. So I will never do a deal with anybody that does not want to engage the services of an attorney. An attorney just for the real estate transaction? Yeah, just for the real estate transaction. So So I got to tell you, I think that's area specific. 
because here in the Midwest, a lot of deals are done without attorneys. The title company basically handles everything. I know growing up on the East Coast, it's a lot different. Everything is handled through attorneys. Yeah. It depends on where you're at. North Carolina, you have to have an attorney do the closing. They can have a notary that comes by. That's what we did to buy this house. Actually, I live in now. So we had a notary, but they were under the supervision of the attorney technically. So you can use a title company. If I dive in more of the story, you'll see why. Let's do it. Uh, I'm dying to hear this. <laughs> so what happened? We put it under contract. We cut loose on the due diligence, right? So we got the inspection done, the phase one done. We had the survey going, no issues there. We had the title search completed. So title, for those of you guys who don't know, title is basically like ownership. So who's owned the property in the past? Can Uncle Bill come out of the woods and all of a sudden say he has a right to possess this property, whereas you have it under contract and now you have an issue, right? So they do a title search to make sure there's no other heirs or whomever has a right to the property and not any liens on the property, et cetera. So title search came back clean. Everything was good. So we went back to the seller and said, hey, our due diligence is going to expire. We're ready to move forward on the property. Are you good to go? And he said, yeah, good to go. Okay, great. Everything's good to go. So our earnest money goes hard. It's not refundable at this point in time. And then he comes back to us and he says, hey, there's a well on the property. It's kind of a weird thing, but there was a well on the property for water access, even though storage, unless you have a manager on site in an office, which this one didn't, you didn't have any manager in an office on site. He had to have water access. So they made him put a well in. So he had a well towards the back corner of the property, which showed up on the survey. He said, hey, I need access to that well because he had another property that was one parcel over. So just imagine you can see it 50 yards away or whatever. Okay, so he wants access to the well on this property. His property is 50 yards over. And he said, and the property in between us, I sold that in the past, which we knew of. And he said, I granted them access and I have an easement that accesses this well. So if I tap into the property in between us, and then this property is tapped into your property, which you're going to buy, we should be okay. And I said, hey, I don't know of any easement. We did all the searches, got the survey done, and easement doesn't show here. We would have to grant you an easement. And the contract says you cannot go back and change anything material on the property. That's where the contract comes into play, right? They can't make any material changes. So he cannot go and then record an easement all of a sudden. So we're in a bit of a conundrum here. So we're like, I don't know what he's talking about with this water thing. So I went and searched the records for, and I had our attorney do it as well. She found out, and I found, I can't remember if it was her, but anyway, one of us found out that he used to own this whole tract of land, tract of land. He sold the middle piece to an auto repair place. The storage is on this piece, and then he still had the land over here. So that's how it was laid out. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. As your portfolio grows, you need financial management services you can rely on to help you save money and continue making the right choices for your company's future. Realestateaccounting.co's top-tier CFO team uses their deep industry and operating experience to guide real estate syndicators, investors, and family offices through every pivotal moment and crucial decision. Their fractional CFO services include budget to actual, cash flow and distributions, and reporting and valuation. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash CFO to find out why REA is one of the fastest growing real estate accounting companies around. The real estate experts provide timely analysis and consultations to help you make the most informed decisions possible. See and trust where your portfolio is headed with the customized financial reports based on the KPIs that matter to you and your business. 
Try it risk-free today at realestateaccounting.co forward slash CFO. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. Okay, so, so the, if, just for a visual, yeah. the road is in front of all three parcels or so, That's right. so to speak. Yep. And to the leftmost side is the automotive business. Let's say it's in the middle was the automotive business. Yep. What's to the left of that? To the left of that is his land. That he's going to keep? Yeah, that he's going to keep okay. about an acre or so. And then to the right of the automotive business is your storage unit. It is the storage. And yep. the well is behind all of that? It is on the storage property in the back corner closest to the automotive business. Okay. So he yep. wants an easement from his land through the automotive business to the well. That's right. Doesn't seem like a deal breaker. It doesn't seem like a deal breaker. So we said, okay. If you want to do that, that's fine. But we still have the issue that he brought up of the automotive business having an easement and access to the well. Because he said, I don't have to record an easement going from my land to the storage. I can just tap in to the automotive business next door and they are tapped into your well. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about because there is no easement from the automotive business to the well on the storage property. So that's what we went back to research to figure out, okay, how does this automotive property have access to this well legally? Can we just cut them off? Can they do something to us? What's the situation here? So we found out when he sold the land to the automotive business, right between the two parcels, he recorded the access, I believe it was on the deed, but it was not a separate easement that was recorded on the storage property. And so he actually went about the process the wrong way, in other words. So when title did their search, it didn't show anything because there was no easement recorded. There was nothing recorded on the deed for the storage property. It was recorded on the deed for the automotive business. So if you went in there and you read it, you would see it, but there was no reason to go and read the deed of a property adjacent to you because it didn't show an easement at L whatsoever. So that's what happened. So three parcels, the one in the middle had access to the well via the deed, but no recorded easement for our property or on our deed whatsoever. So it didn't show up in a survey and it didn't show up an attorney in the title search for our property. So this guy comes back and I told him all that. I know it might be confusing for some people, but basically he wanted access to water. There was no legal way for him to get it, in other words. So now he's kind of stuck. He's under contract to sell a property. He can't legally access the water. And you might be wondering, well, what the heck does he need the water for? I don't know because it was vacant land. And he just, in his mind, was like, if I have water access, my land is now suddenly worth more money. Which if you knew the location and where this is in Gastonia, that was probably the furthest thing from the truth. So this wasn't in Maine and Maine. This is like in the outskirts of Gastonia, kind of in the country a little bit. So we had some new neighborhoods coming in around us, but it wasn't going to make this acre of land that much more valuable. Long story short, this gentleman, we try to show a lot of respect and patience. He was about 70. 
I want to say close to 80, but definitely 70 years old. Every phone call that we had with him, if I had to talk to him about something real quick, it drug out to be about a 20 minute phone call. And I'm not exaggerating every single time, every single phone call just took forever to get through to explain stuff to him. I told my partner at the time, and he's either very clueless or he is the best negotiator in the world. I can't tell which is which one is which because he is wearing me out. So anyway, we said, okay, if you can get an easement running down the road here to get access, he doesn't want to drill anything. He doesn't want to tap into us or whatever. He just wanted to have the easement from his land to our land to access water just because he felt like that made it more valuable. So we said, okay, no problem. If you want that, we'll go ahead and get it done. We need to extend the contract to do so. So he agreed to do that, which was a little bit like pulling teeth. But then he went down to the city, said he got the easement, said he got approval, which there was no way that it was going to happen that quick. And then throughout the process, he, you could tell he was kind of getting seller's remorse. I think this was part of his retirement plan, and he was going to hold on to it for quite a while. But when we were talking to him in the very beginning, he said, yeah, I'm getting too tired. I'm getting too old for this. I don't want to manage this stuff anymore and deal with tenants and all that stuff. He only had 21 people there. But at the same time, as he realized he was going to be parting ways with this facility that he had built from the ground up and owned ever since, I don't know how, when he built it, I forgot, in the 90s or whatever, I don't think he could break away from it mentally. So you could see his attitude and his desire to get the deal done change the more time went on in our contract process. So he, at one point, I know I'm talking a lot here, but to give you guys an idea, at one point he said, how much can I pay you guys just to go away? And we said, Eugene, we got it in the contract, man. We have expenses that we've already spent on this thing. We can't do that. We're already expecting to close on the deal. You've signed a contract to close the deal. Chris, was this a killer deal? Was this an okay deal? I would say it was a okay deal. It was probably a a double. If you had to think of a baseball analogy, not a grand slam by any means, probably a double. That's actually a good question. 22 units on an acre of land. You could probably triple that. If you didn't want to do all that development, you could add in parking, which that's one part of what we're planning on doing was actually just adding the parking, putting in gravel, getting it graded just to be able to put units later on or even portable units. You don't have to build them from the ground up and put a concrete foundation. You could put portable container units on there as well. And then we're going to flip the deal in about a year, year and a half. The rents were below market. There's no way to rent online. There was no power at the facility. There was no security cameras. There was nothing. There was zero marketing done whatsoever. I actually set up a Facebook page in a Craigslist ad and ran that ad on Craigslist probably every other day. The Facebook page, I would pay a couple bucks to run ads in the area to generate phone calls and just to see who would call my number. I set up a Google number to see who would call in and what they wanted to rent. And we got great feedback from that as well. So we knew that there was demand in this market and there was a new neighborhood coming in up the street being built by DR Horton. So it was perfect. This was just down the road from our facility. So there was a lot of upside in the deal. But looking back, it was probably maybe a double or so. Yeah, so there was a lot of value add that you guys would have to do. Yeah, the market itself wasn't the greatest. He was renting 10 by 10s, not climate control for 50 bucks a unit. We were advertising for 75 and getting phone calls. So it wasn't like it was a big stretch. So Eugene wants you to walk away from this deal now. (laughs) How how does that conversation go? Exactly right. So now that the listeners can get a better picture of it, like, okay, why would you want to go through the process of this? Well, because there was upside in the deal. Maybe would have done better than a double. Maybe it would have been a grand slam, which is fine. But we could see the value that we could add there. And we were buying it for $112,000. So if you do the math on that, it's really cheap. So that's why we wanted to do this deal. So anyway, so we were ready to go and buy the deal. But he said, how much can I 
pay you guys to walk away. We said, we're not going to do that. You need to close the deal with us. And he said, well, I'm not going to close. I'm not going to sign the docs. I'm not going to close anything. And we just tried to gently, I can't tell you, man, we use a lot of patience because I understood his situation. He also had a family matter that came up during this process. So we kind of gave him a little bit of breathing room there, unexpected family death. So we were trying to be very patient with him, but we said, hey, do you have an attorney? Because your attorney needs to really explain to you what's in this contract. And this, I think, is important for listeners. So we talked about the due diligence process and the earnest money deposit, right? The buyer can get their earnest money deposit back during due diligence and they can walk away. And sellers usually feel like, oh, well, you could just walk away, tie it up, hit me for a retrade. In other words, reduce the price and I got to retrade with you because you already have it in a contract and I don't want to do all that. But what does the buyer get if the seller walks away? What are the remedies for the buyer? And that should be spelled out in your contract. It's called specific performance. That's the legal term for it, where the seller's obligated to sell your property. There's a number of reasons why, but it's because your real estate is unique. And even two houses, two houses are the same, even two across the street or two next door to each other. Same floor plan, same everything. One has a backyard, the other has a smaller backyard. One sits on a hill, the other doesn't. Whatever. One's closer to the bus stop, the other one's not. So no two properties are alike. If the seller has agreed to sell, then they must do so. And they sign that contract. So that was our remedy, right? So we could lose all the money and all the due diligence and all that stuff and get our earnest money back. Seller says, no, I'll give you your earnest money back. And I'll even compensate you above your earnest money to cover all your due diligence. That doesn't matter because I want the property. The property is unique. You think about all the emotions tied up in that. When I talk about the upside in the deal, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to make some money on this. Won't be a home run, but it's a good deal. You're ready to go. You're emotionally involved in that process. To then say, I'll give you your earnest money back and pay your due diligence fees isn't going to cut it for a buyer. In your defense, you weren't stealing this property. I mean, no. you were going in there and you were going to have to put a lot of time, money, and effort into making it better. So oh, it yeah. wasn't like you were just yeah. going to buy it cheap, flip it, sell it. That specific performance clause, is that in every contract? No, it's typical? not. It's mm-hmm. not, is it? Mm-mm. No, it's not. Typically, this is one thing that is good about the Commercial Realtor Association. I'm not a commercial realtor, but the Realtor Association provides contracts for their real estate agents. And those contracts are really buttoned up very, very well. Sometimes buyers and sellers won't like to use them because they seem kind of maybe amateur or something like that. They want to get their attorney to draft a contract. Totally fine either way. But that realtor contract actually has everything buttoned up really nicely. So that's what we used in this case. I am a real estate agent. I have a uh, license, but I'm not a realtor. But we were able to use a contract from our attorney that was her commercial real estate contract, basically her realtor contract. So that has it in there. There is not a clause or usually, at least in North Carolina, it doesn't say specific performance clause. It doesn't say that in there, but it describes the actions that happen should the buyer breach or should the seller breach. And it describes those actions. And those actions can be summed up with the term specific performance. In other words, the buyer is to be compensated for their loss, obviously, and they have any remedies under the court of law, something, something like that. Basically, they can force the seller to sell the property because they have a contract in place to do so. Is there a case law that backs that up? In North Carolina, absolutely. That's why it's in there. Yeah, absolutely. The contract in North Carolina has grown from one page or three pages to 14 or 15 pages, and it covers all those things. That's why you want to understand your contract as a buyer, even as a passive investor, whoever you're investing with, you want to make sure that those folks, the sponsors understand what they're doing, right? And understand the contract and the remedies. Because if you're giving them your money or even using your own money to buy something, you want to make sure that you understand if I don't perform and I don't do what I say I'm going to do, 
What am I penalized with? I can lose my earnest money. Usually that's the only remedy to a seller is the earnest money deposit. And that's usually why a seller wants to have a higher earnest money deposit if they're getting good advice from a broker or whomever, because they will cover and compensate not just for the time of the property being tied up, but also the emotional aspect of things, right? I'm getting ready to sell. You've already contemplated in your mind as a seller, I'm going to the beach, you know, with my money or whatever. And then the buyer suddenly backs out or the buyer suddenly breaches. Well, what sort of compensation do you have? So as a seller, you don't want that earnest money to be high. Buyers usually want it to be low, but that's the compensation to the seller. Well, what does the buyer get? The buyer gets to sue for specific performance to compel the seller to fulfill the obligations of the contract that they signed. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. Here's a problem you're probably not solving for right now. Have you ever had a tenant squat inside your rental and refuse to pay rent? Or are you worried about renting to a serial rent dodger? You've probably used a credit report for tenant screening before, but what if I told you you're missing out on info you need to properly verify prospective tenants? That's a problem, and the solution is Rentify. Rentify provides a summary of a prospective tenant's financial information using bank-verified transactional data you can't get from a credit check. This includes monthly income, payroll, past rent payments, and identity verification. Rentify's reports also highlight non-sufficient funds, overdraft history, and missed rent payments. It's all available at www.trustrentify.com. The best part is Rentify's financial reports instantly verify the full financial picture of a tenant within minutes, so you will no longer have to waste hours or even days verifying their information manually. And you can eliminate the risk of being duped by fraudulent documents and losing thousands of dollars, getting unreliable tenants evicted. Visit TrustRentify.com and use the promo code FAIRLESS for 25% off your first report package. That's T-R-U-S-T-R-E-N-T-I-F-Y.com. Put in the promo code FAIRLESS, F-A-I-R-L-E-S-S, for 25% off your first report package. You had that in your contract, so why not pursue legal action? How did this end? (sighs) Yeah, we debated it for quite a while. And if it were a larger deal, let's say, let's say it was a $2 million deal, whatever, a little more sophisticated seller, that would have been a different conversation. This guy was nearly 80 years old. At one point, he wanted the funds to be direct deposited to his Edward Jones account, which we have nothing to do with that. That's not going to happen. My guess was to avoid taxes, but that's not the way to do it. Yeah. We didn't want to go and beat the guy up. Why do that? You know, did you lose your earnest money? No, we did not. So we got him to sign off that we can get it back. And we did, but we lost our due diligence costs, right? So the attorneys, yeah, attorneys, title, PCA, phase one and survey. And there was no reasoning with him to get reimbursed for those? None, zero. Yeah, Yeah. zero. He was very hard to get a hold of towards the end, of course, for obvious reasons. But once we got our attorneys involved and said, well, we had them involved the whole time, but we said, look, you guys just call them and let them know that we're willing to terminate and we just want to earn this money back. That's it. So once they sent that over, he signed off on it and it was good to go. 
I have to share a similar story. I was purchasing a half million dollar strip mall and it turns out that the middle son, or this was the youngest son who had just inherited the strip mall when his dad passed away and he wanted to sell it very quickly before his brothers got wind that he was going to sell it. So he inherited it. He took possession of it. It was in his name and his brothers, well, let me back up. The realtor calls me and says, Hey, any chance you can close in four days? And I'm like, no, the title company can't get this done in four days. All right. Well, I didn't think it was going to happen, but I told him I'd ask. And that was just weird. I didn't understand that. So as time went on, I get a call from my realtor and she says, Hey, by the way, the seller's not going to sell you this building anymore, but they're going to reimburse you for any expenses. And I'm like, no, we have a contract. What do you mean? And I didn't know the specific performance clause. I'm going to write this down now to check my contracts. <laughs> right. But they said, yeah, the older brother found out that he's going to sell it and he wants to keep it in the family. And I'm like, okay, now it makes sense. He wanted to sell it real quick before big brother found out that he was selling it. And all I did was I threatened a lawsuit if they didn't fulfill their end of the bargain and go to the closing table. And I got some legal advice online just by searching forums. And from what I gathered, there isn't a lot of remedy for the buyers. You have to prove specific damages. And in this case, future income is not a specific damage. So all I could have sued for is whatever costs I was out. But what an important lesson learned to look for that specific performance clause. Yeah, it's huge. That's a great story right there. Yeah. It's and huge. Then, and yeah, then like you said, have a remedy if the seller fails to close. And could that remedy be a, a financial penalty, a $20,000 penalty or something if it's in the contract? Absolutely. As a buyer and seller, you can amend that contract and add whatever you want to add to it. So absolutely. You can say, seller, if you fail to perform and selling me this property, change your mind, get cold feet, whatever, you owe me $150,000 just because. Yeah. Just because that number popped in my head. You agree to that. And you can do whatever you want with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get a copy of that North Carolina commercial real estate contract. Yeah. Because here in Ohio, it's very simple. It's almost identical to the residential contract. Thank you for sharing all of that. Absolutely. Your listeners, go ahead and Google that. North Carolina commercial realtor offered a purchase sale contract. And again, it won't say, if you try to do a search in there and for specific performance, it won't say that in there. But it'll be a section there that talks about buyer's remedies in case of seller breach, and it'll describe what happens in there. And so that's where you're covered as a buyer, that if the seller backs out, oh, you know, I'm not going to sell you the property anymore. Or in this case, Eugene wouldn't sell it to us unless we gave him the easement, right? So he's kind of twisting our arm there. So what are our remedies in that case? Well, Eugene can't go make any material changes to the property. It says that in the contract, that the seller is not allowed to make changes like that. They can't go record something after they put it in the contract. So he couldn't do it. And he still had to sell us the property as is if we decided to sue him for that. Yeah. It's amazing how each section in these contracts, there's reasons behind the fact that they're in there. That is exactly right. So yeah. part of the lessons is don't do handshake deals. Somebody, when I say that you would think, you would probably think, yeah, that makes sense. Duh. Or why do we have contracts? They're so convoluted. I don't like contracts. We just got to shake hands and just do it like the olden days. No, the reason we have it is because in the olden days, somebody tried to screw somebody else over and so it ended up going to court. And that's why it's in the contract now, at least the standard realtor association contracts. And of course, the disclaimer that just because it's in the North Carolina contract, it may or may not apply to Very whatever good. state. You're Very in. good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Chris, one more question. 
Do you do letters of intent? Absolutely. They're non-binding. Absolutely. Non-binding. Why do you do it? To get the seller on the same page and to agree to the basic terms, price, due diligence, earnest money deposits, et cetera, closing date, extensions, if any, to get those basic terms out of the way so that we can save money when we go back to the attorney. So we give the attorney the LOI, here's the basic terms, let's go and get the contract drafted. You wouldn't necessarily have to do that on every single deal if you're dealing with maybe a smaller mom and pop person or whatever, you might just send them a contract. But the LOI is definitely non-binding. So hopefully that answers your question first before I get into the story. But definitely in commercial real estate, it's customary to use an LOI to talk about the basic terms first before we start getting attorneys involved in drafting a PSA and negotiating and all that stuff. We did have a situation with a broker. I have to be kind of vague about this because I know the deal hasn't closed yet and all that. And it's not our deal. So here's what happened. We put a deal under contract managed by one of the big guys. When I say one of the big guys, I mean one of the bigger self-storage management companies out there. I'm kind of being vague here, okay? There was a commercial broker involved. We agreed to terms on the LOI. We're getting the contract drafted, the PSA drafted. We went back and forth, probably on two to three revisions. Maybe it was four, I don't remember, but two to three revisions on the PSA. Once you're doing that, you're spending money on the attorneys and all that stuff. So that means you're you're working- the PSA is what? The purchase and sale agreement. That's the contract. Yeah, thank you. So we're going back and forth, negotiating some terms in the PSA, besides the main ones of purchase price, et cetera. All of a sudden, broker calls us. We had checked in with him on like a Thursday and a Friday saying, hey, any updates on the PSA? Just want to get the revisions back and have it under contract because we had like very few minor things left to discuss. And that was it, really. So didn't hear from him. Heard from him the following Monday. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. He said, hey, got bad news. The seller received another offer and they're going to go in a different direction. We were like, what in the world are you talking about? They're going to go in a different direction. We've been doing this whole song and dance here now for like a week and a half. What gives? And long story short, they got another offer. That was a higher number, a larger purchase price. The company was already managing the facility. So the seller in their mind, bigger dollars, easier transition. I'm not obligated to sell to this buyer, even though we had it under LOI and we're negotiating the PSA. And they are 100% true right on that. So did we lose money? Yes. And we lost time and the emotional <laughs> roller coaster of that as well. So yeah, they we went in a different direction. So we lost that deal. That's why it's important once you get it under quote unquote LOI that you negotiate that PSA as quickly as possible because they don't have to sell to you until they have signed that contract. Yeah. The reason I brought that up is I've never done an LOI mm-hmm. as a buyer. Yep. And if I want to make an offer for whatever it is, the listing realtor will often ask for an LOI and I send a contract. Yeah. Because that little bit of time that can lapse, you can lose deals. So I go straight into the contract. And I guess from my perspective, that is the working LOI where you send your version of whatever you want in the contract. And then they can come back and say, well, your due diligence period is too long. We're not going to agree to a financing contingency. But at that point, you've already got the contract in the process. So that's my perspective. I I hate LOIs because they're non-binding. Yeah, absolutely. So we have done it where we send over the LOI and the contract. Ah, okay. Uh, Yeah. And so we'll send both just because like you just said, it gets the process going and it reduces the time and the negotiations because it's already in there. You want to just strike something, whatever, send it back to us, marked up, et cetera. So it really depends on, in a sense, what's customary. So we switched and we're doing bigger deals now much bigger deals. We're closing one tomorrow, which is very exciting. We're looking forward to that one, but it's very customary now in the storage space. If you're doing larger deals, the broker or the owner will expect an LOI, not the PSA. 
but we'll send both in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases we'll send both. And I like that because it's almost like a cover letter to the contract yeah. where you highlight the high level important things that are in the contract. Yeah. Chris, great conversation again. Best ever listeners, if you haven't already heard Chris Bennett's earlier podcast interview, it was incredible. I got a lot out of it and I'm sure you will too if you have any interest in self-storage. So Chris, I know you have a closing tomorrow. This is crunch time. Thank you for taking time out of your day and share more important lessons with our best ever listeners. Happy to do it, man. Had a lot of fun. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and good luck tomorrow at your closing. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate it, man. Take care.